I'm Steve Glaveski, and this is Venture Backed. Now, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the program. I'm a big fan of your work, and you're you're joining me all the way from Boston, Massachusetts. Does that immediately make you a fan of the Red Sox, the Bruins, and the Celtics, Ben? Unfortunately, yes, you have to be, or, <laughs> or else they kick you out. They kick you out of the city. That's funny. I've interviewed quite a few people from Boston, and they all say the same thing. They basically say, look, it's sacrilege if you don't support them, and you'll be booted yeah. out of town. It's basically religion here, so you don't really have a choice. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, Ben, I mean, you've written 20 books in the past 20 or so years, including several New York Times bestsellers, two of which were adapted into number one box office movies, uh, such as 21 and The Social Network. Um, today, I'd love to chat about your new book, Bitcoin Billionaires, which unpacks the story of the, uh, the Winklevoss brothers, uh, the twins, or the Winkle, was it, Winkle V? Um, the Winkle Vi, yeah. Winkle Vi, but... Um, That's the plural. That's the official plural now. <laughs> I love that. But um, I also wanted to unpack what your ascendancy to the top of the writing world looked like. Um, did you always grow up wanting to be a writer, Ben? Yeah, so I started, you know, when I was about 12 years old. Um, my parents had made a rule when we were little that we had to read two books every week before we were allowed to watch TV. Wow. And being a big television fan, I was a speed reader as a child. Huh. And um, by the age of 12, I knew this is what I wanted to do. Um, but I didn't know how one became a writer. So when I went to college, um, I basically started writing. And when I graduated, I locked myself up in an apartment in Boston and wrote nine novels in about a year. Wow. Um, which I don't recommend to anybody. <laughs> um, and they were all rejected by everyone in publishing. Um, but I managed to finally get an agent interested, and I sold my first book when I was about 24. Fantastic. I love that story. Who Did you have any uh, childhood favorites, uh, Ben? I did. So, I mean, when I was in high school, I was obsessed with Brady Stanellis and Jay McInerney. Mm -hmm. And that nearly ruined my life, because <laughs> when I set out to be a writer, I tried to write like them. And so everything was taking place in bars in New York City. And, you know, mm -hmm. there was a lot of uh, stuff that that wasn't selling um, at that point in time. And so uh, then I discovered Michael Crichton, and I decided to try my hand at thrillers. And then I pretty much discovered Hunter S. Thompson. And so I kind of became, uh, started writing true life thrillers. Um, so it was kind of this blend of these three writers, I think, mm -hmm. that, that really led to where I got. Yeah. And uh, I guess there's a, a lesson in that in for people who are trying to find their own voice, it's a matter of you know, getting out there and exploring lots of different things and then taking bits and pieces of that to essentially form your own sort of unique identity. Yeah. I mean, the hardest part of being a writer is finding your voice because mm. you start off trying to mimic everybody else. Yeah. Um, you know, and pretty soon you learn that you are not those people. Yeah, exactly. So, right. Yeah, it's, it's that's the big part of the game. Yeah, and I mean, when you were in college, you said you wrote nine novels, and you don't recommend them to anyone. But in terms of those nine novels and what writing them did for you as an author, as a writer, um, what would you say the the benefit of writing those nine books in such a short amount of time was? Yeah, well, some people, you know, write one book nine times until they get it right. Mm -hmm. For me, it was more of a process of writing nine books that weren't right before my first book that was good enough to get published. So nice. I think I, I learned how to deal with multiple characters, how to get away from all the, the amateurish things that you do in the beginning of your writing career. 
um, and, and figure out, you know, plotting and things like that. So for me, it was a process of just getting all this bad writing out of me, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, different writers have different processes of getting there. Yeah. And uh, I think I heard uh, Adam Grant say something about creative people in the sense that they just have more swings at bat uh, or more, um, essentially they take more swings. So they're more likely to get a few home runs than the person who perhaps doesn't try or perhaps gives up after the first or second book wasn't so successful. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually a great way to put it. I mean, you just, you have to be completely determined because there's so many walls built up. There's so many things trying to stop you from making it. Mm. Um, so it's really a matter of just fighting through all of that. Mm. And on those walls, Ben, I mean, how did they show up in in your ascendancy? Obviously, you said you wrote nine books and some of them weren't very good. But were there any big challenges that uh, or any big walls that uh, stood between you and perhaps, you know, writing, bringing down the house? Well, yeah, I mean, rejection after rejection after rejection. <laughs> I was rejected 190 times before I sold my first book. Yeah. And I used to keep all the rejection letters taped to my walls like a serial killer, you know, to spur me on. Yeah. Um, and then even when I sold my first book, it came out, nobody read it. Second book came out, nobody read it. I actually had written uh, six books before Bringing Down the House that were all published mm. um, that nobody read. So Bringing Down the House was actually my seventh book, but my first successful book. Just a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. One thing separates OK Venture Returns from Great Venture Returns. Deal flow. Do you wish your firm had more of it? With just 2% of venture firms capturing 95% of returns, content is becoming essential to cultivating visibility, reputation, brand, and deal flow. Here at Sonic Boom, we specialize in crafting compelling content for venture capital firms. Find out more and lock in your free one-hour strategy call at sonicboom.vc. And now, back to the show. Wow, that's, that's, that's amazing. And I, and I guess the lesson there is also that you know, every no gets you closer to a yes, essentially. And uh, my, my, I've only published one book through a legitimate publishing house. And even then, it was after like 39 rejections from agents and publishers and, and whatnot. And I always say, hey, with every rejection, you can learn something. Uh, you could potentially go back to them and find out why they rejected you. And perhaps with every subsequent pitch, update it accordingly. And you're more likely to get closer to that yes. Yeah, I agree. I mean, everyone I've worked with, since I became successful, I have a rejection letter from. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so my current agent, my current editor, they rejected me in the past. That's beautiful. It's, it's kind of like a, I remember reading a Airbnb rejection letter from an early stage venture capitalist, which said, hey, cool idea, but we just don't think that the market size for what you guys are doing is big enough. And this was from like 2007. And and now they're worth what thirty billion US dollars. So uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they've stuck you that one on their going. on their wall as well. Great. <laughs> uh, yeah. So a lot of the people that I've spoken to on this show, Ben. I mean, I'm talking to high performers across lots of different fields, and and while they're all working really really hard, many of them will also uh, they won't discount the role that luck played uh, mm-hmm. in their success. Um, how would you say luck has shown up in in your success? Well, I mean, I think, you know, a lot of that is being in the right place at the right time, and you can't really control that. Mm. Um, You know, I ran into the MIT Blackjack team, these college kids who were making millions playing blackjack just serendipitously at a bar. You know, I saw these kids there, and they had way too much money, and it was all in $100 bills. And I started hanging out with them. I started going to Vegas with them, and I saw the system. And so I was in the right place at the right time. And and then when I wrote about them, it just exploded. 
loaded and it kind of changed my whole career mm. and i guess the more you do the work the more you put yourself out there the more likely you are to have those serendipitous exchanges yeah i mean you have to sort of be there and you have to have the ability or i guess the, to see what's going on but really a lot of luck is involved in, in, in sort of finding that first story that really propels mm. you yeah and i think it was a similar sort of story that played out five years later with um accidental billionaires where you received an email at 2 a.m in the morning yeah, random email, two in the morning, a, a Harvard student. He said, my best friend founded Facebook and no one's ever heard of him. And I went out for a drink and in walked Eduardo Saverin, who <laughs> you know, was played by Andrew Garfield in the movie. And, and, Andrew, and he sat down, Eduardo, and just started to tell me this crazy story about how, in his words, Mark Zuckerberg screwed me. Um, and he went on from there to tell me the story about him and his friend Mark and how they couldn't meet girls. And, and um, Eduardo got into a finals club, but Mark... Um, couldn't. So Mark hacked all the computers at Harvard, pulled up pictures of every girl on campus and made a website where you could compare the girls at Harvard. Yeah. And that led to the attention of the Winklevoss twins. Um, and uh, and they hired him to work on their website. And Mark just, you know, screwed them over and launched Facebook. And, you know, the rest is in the movie, but basically yeah. uh, ended up getting sued by Eduardo, sued by um, the twins. And it's just this crazy story. Yeah. Yeah. And I understand um Eduardo also placed a restraining order on you after the book proposal for well, what happened that was, was my proposal leaked onto the internet. Mm. Um, and at that moment, uh, Facebook settled with Eduardo for what became $5 billion. It's um, a small sum. Right. And part of the settlement agreement was that he was never allowed to speak to me again because they were trying to stop right. the book from being written. So he had to send a legal restraining order to me. He broke up with his girlfriend because he was dating my wife's best friend. And, um, and he moved to Singapore. Um, so, you know, you know, I get it for $5 billion. Everyone I know would cut off contact with me. So it's a fair uh, thing to do for that kind of money. But yeah, I haven't spoken to Eduardo since. Yeah, no, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I guess on the back of the success of uh, the movies 21 and the social network, you probably gained quite a bit of notoriety amongst college students. I imagine nowadays, I remember reading something whereby you were receiving 30 to 40 emails a week from college kids wanting to tell their story. Are you still receiving those kinds of emails? Yeah, every time I do a book and I go on tour, I just start getting and this, this, this torrent of, of emails to my website, to my Twitter, to my Instagram, just pitching story ideas. Um, and most of them are, you know, not something I would write about. And mm. a lot of them are from prison. Um, but, uh, every now and then one of them is something that, that I really look at. Yeah. I love that. Um, so I guess 20 books into your career, Ben, you know, 20 years into your career, essentially, well, actually more than 20 years now. Um, I mean, how do you essentially maintain your energy and enthusiasm for your work? I mean, it's, it's all about the stories. You know, you find one of these compelling stories and it just throws you into that world and mm. you, you live vicariously through the characters. You just kind of disappear into it. So until I find the story, you know, I don't write at all. I mean, I'm not motivated to do anything. Um, but when a story really hits me and I see the movie, you know, I see the characters running around a big movie screen because that's where it starts for me. Mm. I won't do a story unless I think it can't, it can be some sort of movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, uh, and then I dive in. So the energy comes from the story itself, you know, hanging out with the characters, becoming a part of it as much as I can. Yeah. I imagine it must be challenging to navigate the, I suppose the analysis paralysis that might come from having so many stories fall in your lap and having to choose perhaps one that you'll dedicate the next say six to 12 months working on. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a big commitment, not only to the time of writing it, but to being with these characters, they become a part of your life that extends beyond the publication of the book. Mm. So, you know, that's why I kind of stay away from criminals for the most part, or people that you wouldn't want to spend a lot of time with, because it's going to be your life for a long time. Yeah. And I mean, we'll, we'll talk about Bitcoin billionaires shortly, but I understand you spent about 18 months or so getting to know the, the Winklevoss twins. Yeah. Getting to Reno them. I mean, Reno. I spent mm. last year and a half with them, um, but they were, you know, my original part of my original sources for the social network. So I've known them a long time, but now I really got to know them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll unpack what you learned shortly, but with respect to writing, Ben, um, as a fellow writer, and we've got a lot of writers that listen to this show, um, have you got a specific strategy or approach to tackling a blank page staring back at you? I mean, I do have some tricks, you know, one of the tricks is when you end your writing for the day, you stop in the middle of a sentence um, mm -hmm. because the hardest part yeah. of writing each day is starting again. So right in the middle of a sentence, you just put down the pen and you come back to it the next day. You just finish that sentence and you're already writing. Um, the other thing is I write by page number, not by time. Mm -hmm. So I set, uh, you know, six pages a day or whatever it is. And it could be done in an hour. It could be done in a day. Um, so that, that's pretty much how I do it. Yep. I love that approach, especially stopping in the middle of a sentence. And I think people do similar things where they will write down their to-do list for the following day before they leave the office. And therefore, when they right. sit down, they're ready to go rather than spending 10 to 15 minutes kind of trying to disorient themselves and figure out what they're going to do that day. Uh, they can just get into flow. And, and speaking of getting into flow, uh, how do you go about getting into that deep work state, Ben? You know, I've, I've gone through different rituals in my life. Um, I used to actually play backgammon against myself, uh -huh. which is a weird little thing I used to do. Um, music is sometimes involved. You know, I write now I write during the day. I used to be a nighttime writer, but now I have little kids. So the night doesn't really work anymore. Um, so I basically lock myself up and just try and get into that zone. Once I'm writing, I'm writing, you know, I've already done the research. I've already done the outline. So it's just writing. Yeah, and I imagine you've got a pretty healthy relationship with your technology and you put your phone away and you just focus on that one thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I've i done different things over my career, but right now it's, you know, the internet is a big part of your life, so there's no way to sort of turn it off. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not one of those writers who disappears into the woods and writes, but I have disappeared into Vegas and written before, <laughs> yeah. um, going somewhere where, you know, it's a 24-hour city where you can get food at any time. Um, that sort of thing works well. Okay. Most people, uh, when they escape to Vegas, I don't think they're going there for the writing. Well, if you've been as much as I have, <laughs> you're already sick of the other stuff. Fair enough. Well, you have written several books about Vegas and, uh, and casinos and whatnot and blackjack. So, uh, I, I totally get that. Um, on writing stories, I mean, stories are powerful, not just when it comes to writing books, Ben, but also to help us essentially connect with people, sell ourselves, sell our business, uh, and so much more. What simple advice do you have for our audience when it comes to telling a compelling story? Well, you know, you have to have a, a main character that is either likable or that you can empathize with. Mm -hmm. um, can't just be a bad guy and can't just be someone you wouldn't want to follow. Um, and that's a big part of it. Every character has to have a motivation that everyone can understand, I think. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then the story has to be exciting. It has to be highs and lows, um, a lot of conflict, I think. Um, but, you know, you know when there's a good story. Yeah. And you can yeah. tell the story in one sentence. Like, that's a big key. I have to be able to tell you the whole story in one sentence because most people's attention spans don't go beyond that. 
Yes. So you got to really have it all locked down to one sentence. So that's essentially your elevator pitch, if you will. Yeah, an elevator pitch, or you know, it's it's got to be something that you grasp instantly. Mm. Yeah, absolutely love that. Um, so let's let's move on and talk about your new book, Ben, which we've hinted at a couple of times: Bitcoin Billionaires: A True Story of Genius, Betrayal, and Redemption. Which, as you uh, highlighted earlier, tells the story of the Vinkowas twins, who people will remember from the Social Network. And if they haven't seen the Social Network or read Accidental Billionaires, they should definitely check those uh check them out um i mean it's obviously a logical follow-up to accidental billionaires and as you said earlier you've been uh you had to re-know uh relearn who the guys were because uh, to your to quote you it, the film essentially or the book rather addresses an incomplete image of the twins that people were left with after reading your last book or watching the social network. And my opinion of the twins was, you know, preppy guys, six foot something, you know, Olympic rowers and everything else, elitist kids, right. and very easy to just not like. But, you know, you've spent the last year and a half getting to Reno them, and apparently it's not so crystal clear. No, you know, so I prejudge them like everybody does. Mm-hmm. You know, they walk into the room, they look like something out of Greek mythology. Yeah. And they look like the bad guys in every 80s movie you ever saw, <laughs> chasing the karate kid around the gym. And you immediately judge them as the alphas, the jocks, the you know. And Mark Zuckerberg as the lovable nerd. Mm. But the reality was something very different. I think now we're seeing Mark Zuckerberg, who he truly is, I think. And we're also getting a new look at the twins, hopefully, from Bitcoin billionaires that these guys, you know, speak multiple languages. They're Latin scholars. They're computer coders. They're economic geniuses. Um, They're not who I thought they were. And I think when we did the social network, Army Hammer played them great as caricatures. um, But that's not really who they are. Mm. It's who they look like. They do come from privilege. You know, they come from wealthy family and a wealthy town. But their father was the son of a coal miner. Mm-hmm. Their mother was the daughter of a police officer. They don't come from this rich background other than their father. Um, so they're instilled with a very different sense of right and wrong than you might expect. And their need to build something or create something, um, I think it comes out in this book and it wasn't really in the last book. Mm. And I, I did read that, like you said, they're of German working class stock essentially except for their father and, right. and these values that they hold dear um, seems to have, well, they seem to have this very sort of clear delineation in their minds between right and wrong. And and you've said it's kind of reminiscent of some 1950s sensibilities. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you go back to the social network, the main reason they were upset at Mark Zuckerberg had nothing to do with money. It didn't even have anything to do with the fact that he launched Facebook without them. It's that he lied to them. It's that he cheated them. And this is something they can't get over mm. because they're built to believe in this sort of sense of respect and honor and, you know, the men of Harvard thing. But it, it goes back farther than that to this idea that there is a right and wrong and they were wronged. Um, so, yeah, I really respect that in them. Mm. Yeah, I absolutely love that, especially in today's day and age where it can be a matter of just trying to one up the other person. Um, right. by any means necessary. So, uh, Well, especially in Silicon Valley and technology. I mean, people do, that's basically how businesses run in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, and these guys were not really built like that. Yeah. And well, they ultimately have sought out and obtained their redemption, but it all started when they were partying in Ibiza, um, when they caught wind of this thing called Bitcoin. What happened there, Ben? Yeah. So, you know, they first went out to Silicon Valley. They had gotten a settlement 
of $65 million, mm-hmm. which they took in stock. So it ended up being $500 million. And they decided they would become VCs, venture capitalists. Mm-hmm. But nobody would take their money because they were the enemies of Facebook. And everyone's end game is to sell their company to Facebook. Right. So instead, they went off to the island of Ibiza to party, as, as one does. Mm-hmm. And they were sitting on the beach. And a guy walked up and said, have you guys ever heard of Bitcoin? And they hadn't. Nobody really had. Um, outside of libertarians and people who bought drugs on Silk Road, Mm -hmm. nobody had heard of Bitcoin at that moment. So the twins looked at it and they thought this is either garbage or it's the next big thing. And they looked into it and decided to make a very big bet. Yeah, well, it sounds like that bet paid off uh, in, what is it, November 26, 2017. They invested, what, $11 million in Bitcoin? Yeah, and they bought about 1% of all the Bitcoin in existence at the time. They bought somewhere between 100 and 200,000 coins. Um, and as Bitcoin rose to first $10,000, they became billionaires. Then $20,000, they $2 billion or to $4 billion. Um, and now, you know, they're, they're hovering at the billion dollars, a little over a billion um, which is spectacular return on, on $11 million. It's a fantastic return on $11 million. And now they're our CEOs of Gemini, which is essentially a crypto exchange. So like you said, they continue to be billionaires, despite the fact that the crypto bloodbath just tore most people's crypto portfolios apart in late 2017, early 2018. Well, if you bought it at that high of 20000 you know, you're yeah. down 50, more than 50%. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're, that loses the general picture of, of what's really happened with Bitcoin mm. because it was up 5 million percent um, right. when it reached $20,000. So everyone who got in 2012 to 2016 to 17 made ridiculous fortunes. But that also kind of hides the fact that Bitcoin isn't about the price of Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's a casino. You know, the price of Bitcoin is manipulable by these big whales. Mm-hmm. It's based on news stories. It's not based on what's really going on in Bitcoin, which is all of these different people are starting to think of it either as a store of value like gold or as a form of currency. Um, And both of those ideas are are kind of game changers either way that it ends up. Yeah. And the kind of, um, I mean, Bitcoin and the underlying technology, the the, the blockchain, essentially, there's some parallels there between that and the, um, you know, the decentralized verification of transactions and some of the uh, thinking that the Winklevoss twins had around the original Facebook or the Facebook around login uh, authentications. Yeah. So the, what the twins did was they came up with the idea that you needed to have a harvard.edu for the social network they were working on. And that's mm-hmm. something that Mark Zuckerberg used. Um, and that, when Facebook launched, was very intriguing. And, and it was both exclusive and it verified who you were. And then, um, you know, Facebook grew from that idea to allow any anybody's email. But the idea that you were known by your Facebook page um, was, a, was a big part of the success of that company. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Love that. Um, one thing that jumped off the page for me, Ben, was uh, an IM uh, that was sent by Mark Zuckerberg back in the day, which read... Uh, as follows, if you ever need info about anyone at Harvard, just ask. I have over 4,000 emails, pictures, addresses. Um, people just submitted it. I don't know why. I guess they just trust me. Dumb fucks. Um, yeah. You know, whether this was just college locker room talk that, you know, we're all susceptible to uh, or not. I mean, this ultimately hinted at an underlying. And who perhaps, Mark Zuckerberg is, right. Yeah, exactly. And the problem- yeah, the problems they have today with data goes back to what Mark really believes. And mm. and I think he really, really, you know, 
doesn't have a problem with taking all of our data and using it to maximize the ability of Facebook to do what he always wanted it to do, which is to dominate the world. Um, these IMs, these instant messages that I have in my book that came from you know Business Insider originally and, and some other stuff are really spectacular. They're a look into what Mark was doing. Now, listen, he was a college kid, and we yeah. all do a lot of stupid things in college, and assuredly, he's changed a lot since then, and he's learned a lot since then. But when he set out to build Facebook, he did a lot of things that would make people very nervous if he was going to end up the CEO of that company, which he did. Um, and the twins didn't know about these things till after their settlement, and they were unable to reopen their settlement. But the truth is, they make a very good point that Zuckerberg probably did actively and strategically screw them. Mm, yeah, and I mean, as a creative uh i mean when it comes to the big tech companies today uh when, whether it's privacy or whether it's uh our attention i mean i think it was sean parker who said that uh platforms like facebook essentially exploit a vulnerability in human psychology um mm -hmm. essentially they do that to hook people's attention and sell ads uh and it seems to me that you've always had your uh, skepticism around people like Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, I know you admire what he's done and his yeah. uh, ability to create, you know, what is one of the most influential platforms in the world, but skepticism around the, the person and the ethics and the morality that underlie. Yeah. I mean, listen, I've always believed that we got Zuckerberg exactly right with the social network. Mm. He's a genius. You know, he created Facebook the way nobody else could have. He built this thing to, to change the social order which he succeeded in doing. And the world became a world where a guy like Mark Zuckerberg could, could rule really. But deep down, you know, he's got some things missing. He's got the ability to sort of understand friendships in real life, I think is missing. Um, he, he lets a lot of people, you know, who were in his life, who were part of Facebook, just go disappear. And you'll see this over and over again, where people have either had a company acquired by him or were part of the original founding crew who are no longer, you know, talking to, who are now going up against Facebook, you know, like Chris Hughes, who, who says we should break up Facebook and other investors who say we should destroy Facebook. And this all goes back to who Mark Zuckerberg is. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess now we're seeing that with uh, his amassing of a lot of power and behavior that doesn't necessarily align with society's values. We're getting a lot of pushback and we're getting appearances at Congress and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the question is, what do you do now with this massive company that most people in the world now spend all their time on um, so much power loaded into this one one guy? Mm. Um, and now, you know, we're seeing that it's doing things that we don't necessarily love. And yet none of us really want to get rid of it um, yeah. because we also really use it and like it. So it's a it's a tough question. What do you do with this? Yeah, it's a, it is a tough question, and you know I'm sure you're familiar with uh, the work of people like Cal Newport and Deep Work and everything else. And you know, if people are essentially touching their phone two thousand times a day, according to some research companies, spending three to four hours a day looking at their phones, which is the equivalent of six to eight weeks a year looking at their phones, then their attention is very much, uh, you know, being monetized and. If you are a creative, if you are a writer, if you are anyone who does work that requires critical thinking, then you're going to be way short of where you could potentially be. And, and the collective uh, impact of that on you know humanity, uh, if, if I'm going to play that card, could be you know mm -hmm. tragic. Well, you know, listen, you can look at it like the book, the book at the book industry. I mean, the whole idea of sitting and reading 
reading a book for two hours on an airplane just kind of vanished, <laughs> you know? Mm. Um, it's everyone consumes in much smaller quantities again, essentially, but more of it, but in clips, you know, yeah. and then also, I mean, we've shifted and, you know, it's hard to sit here and say, okay, it's bad or it's good because the reality mm. is we were different than our parents' generation and they were different than their parents' generation. Um, we can't expect the next generation to do what we did. Um, and I think as a creative, the goal for me anyways, is to try and, and figure out a way, a path, you know, people still want content. Um, they're just digesting it in a very different way. Um, and, and Zuckerberg was a big part of how that happened. But um, the reality is everything moves much quicker today and you have to figure out a way to reach the people you want to reach um, in a new format. Yes. Uh, so that's sort of something I wanted to touch on with respect to reaching the people you want to reach with a new format. I mean, people's attention spans tend to be a little bit lower today than what they used to be, say, 10 or 20 years ago. And do you write right. with that person in mind and say, okay, I've got to make this next, say, section of the book compelling because I know right. that someone's going to reach for well, their phone any minute? <laughs> you know what is interesting is, is I learned so much from Michael Crichton, you know, Jurassic Park and if you read Michael Crichton, every chapter is a tiny, short chapter. Mm -hmm. yeah, characters are very not detailed, if they're detailed at all. And I think he was ahead of his time. And I've always tried to write in a way that keeps people with very low attention spans reading. Mm -hmm. You know, the New York Times has, has said that I write for people who don't read. <laughs> so I think I've always <laughs> written in that way, you know, because um, I think that way, too. I came from a, a place of loving television and movies, and I wanted to write books. But I wanted to write them in a way that, you know, it's like you're watching a movie. So I think I've always done that. Um, what's interesting now is we've shifted. Everything's TV now. And, and the way TV works now is you don't just sit and watch a show. You watch 10 episodes of a show. Yeah. Um, so it's weird. We both have low attention spans. And yet we're able to consume vast amounts um, with our low attention spans. Mm. So I think a book has to feed into that, you know. I think short chapters, I think quick moments, I think you can get concepts like Bitcoin into a book, but you find a way to get it there, you know, in a palatable way. And I think that's where the Winklevoss twins come in in such a big way, not just in my book, but in, in the world of Bitcoin. Because mm. if you're looking at Bitcoin and you're thinking blockchain or you're thinking some economist somewhere, you know, you're not going to be excited by it because it's just too hard. And it's it's but then you see the Winklevoss twins. And, and diving in like something, like I say, out of Greek mythology, and it starts to intrigue you. And I think they can bring a lot of mainstreaming to the whole idea of crypto. Yeah. Well, I guess if you can take a complex topic like crypto, like blockchain, simplify it and wrap it around a compelling story, then you can go a lot further than, say, a techie who's just going to speak about it in terms of right. uh, the technology. Yeah, see, I never wanted to write about Bitcoin. I'll tell you, I've been pitched Bitcoin so many times over the past two years. I mean, from the very beginnings of Bitcoin, I was getting because every college kid, you know, writes me an email and they'll say, you got to write about Bitcoin. And uh -huh. I had no interest because the word blockchain is the worst word ever invented. It is a horrible word. It makes your eyes glaze over the idea of crypto math, you know, solving this proof of concept, all of this stuff. It's just too hard for me. Mm -hmm. But then I see the twins are billionaires from this investment they make. And I start to look into how that happened and why Bitcoin exploded. And, and I got really into it because there's this drama behind it. Mm. Um, so I do think, yeah, if you want to teach Bitcoin to people, you know, you, you have to teach it to them in a way that they're going to receive it. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's quite a bit of drama. And it's funny because uh, I've had people on the show who, you know, like Andreas Antonopoulos, who's one of the biggest mm -hmm. names in the Bitcoin community. And oh, of course. And these people are brilliant, brilliant people. Brilliant. 
And they're the ones who should be, you know, writing the papers about Bitcoin and, and, and maybe talking to the New York Times about Bitcoin, um, but trying to sell it to, you know, someone in the middle of the country who, who you know, is used to having cash, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a hard way to sell that, I think. Yeah, definitely. And even when it comes to articulating what it is and how it works and, you know, some of the greatest minds in that industry still struggle to articulate that for someone who, say, lives in the, you know, the Midwest and only knows cash. Yeah. And, and what people don't realize is, you know, it's very simple. It's that your cash is already digital. The only money you actually have is what's sitting in your wallet right now. Mm. Everything else is already ones and zeros on the computer somewhere. Yeah. When you walk into a bank and you put $100 in the bank, it doesn't sit there. <laughs> you know, there's no vault with your $100 in it. That immediately is transferred digital and the $100 is gone. Yeah. Um, so your money is already digital. And yeah. so the idea of digital money that I can send directly to you, like sending an email or like sending a, a text with nobody in between us, um, it's simple. That's right. And money in its current form, as most people know, it, it only really has value because of a shared belief system. I mean, it, they're just bits of pieces of paper. Right. So, and different paper has different values. <laughs> you know, it's the yeah, same paper. Exactly. So one's five and one's one and one's 10 and one's 100. We're all just believing it is. That's um, right. And that's, you know, the same as with any kind of store of value. You have to believe it has to be an agreement made between us. You know, if it's backed by a specific government, well, then it's got some power behind it, which is great. But, you know, as we've seen before with crashes and, and, and crashes to come, uh, governments don't last. <laughs> mm. um, so the idea of a universal currency that's backed by math um, isn't such a crazy idea. Yeah, yeah. And one thing that strikes me in this conversation, Ben, is that you're, you come across as someone who's very, very curious about lots of different topics. Is that something that perhaps you always were or did this come about by, you know, through the work that you've done? No, I've always been sort of curious about everything around me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm kind of a, you know, I, I hermit in my lifestyle outside of my writing. So I really don't leave my house except for when I'm researching a book. And then I dive in and go around the world and and travel with it. So that's my outlet. Um, and I, and I see and learn about a new thing, but again, like my audience and like all audience, I don't have a big attention span. So I want to be able to do a project and then move on to the next project. And it's been kind of this thing where I I write a book in about three months and then I find another story. Um, so it's, uh, every year I've gotten to sort of dive into a whole new world. Mm. Um, and it's a, it's an interesting way to live. Yeah. So, so on being a hermit, except when you're working on a book, would you say you lean towards introvert then or? Well, it's a good question. So, you know, I am definitely out there on book tour and and, and out in the world. And Mm. and it's certainly when I am researching a book, you know, I'm in Vegas at some club or in a (laughs) beach in Ibiza. So it's hard to say that I'm an introvert. But the reality is, if I wasn't writing a book, I would never, I live in a mall basically. <laughs> and, uh, I would never leave the mall. I would not go outside. I, yeah. you know, I, I, I'm very content with, with what, you know, my lifestyle is, um, and always have been, you know, I've mm. never, it's weird. I've never been seeking experiences and it seems very ironic that I, I write books that are essentially about experiences, yeah. but in my own life, you know, I don't, think I need any experiences. <laughs> so it's really a, a strange, uh, uh, you know, a strange way to be. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I've, a lot of introverts and ambiverts, uh, entrepreneurs that I speak to 
say that, you know, they'll do the keynotes and they'll get out there and do book tours if they've published a book and, and do what they have to do. They'll get out there and sell, but they're essentially playing a role. And once they're done playing that role, at the end of the day, they feel exhausted and they just need to retire to the little fortress of solitude, which in your right. case is essentially the, the mall you live in. You're absolutely right. And it's, <laughs> it's all about controlling your environment. I think writers, to a large extent, uh, they're seeking control. And that's why they write, you know, because yeah. you control everything in your book. Um, you're controlling these characters who may be real people, but you're placing them in the story. Um, and, uh, and you do, you, you, you have your environment, which you try and control as much as possible. Um, and, uh, I don't know, it's probably a, a, a vast form of anxiety <laughs> that mm. leads to creativity. Um, but, um, it's, it's, it's interesting to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And just, just one last thing on, on that, I guess when it comes to spending a lot more time being a hermit, do you think that makes you more, say, reflective and more likely to come up with sort of breakthrough ideas and story points than someone who's constantly yeah. out you know, there? It, I mean, I think I have a very vivid imagination. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that for me, the, the world inside my head is as real as the world outside my head. Um, so when I sit down to write this story or any story, you know, I have all the research, I have all the information, but I'm seeing it play out in my head as if I'm there. Um, so I do think that being able to sort of lock myself up and have my environment, you know, when I'm writing a book, I eat the exact same meal every meal. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't for months. Um, I literally, you know, the rest of my life recedes and the book that I'm writing becomes my reality. So, yeah, I think that being this way is, is, is a big part of, of how I do what I do. Mm-hmm. So, when you are writing a book, I guess, in terms of managing your personal, say, relationships, uh, is yeah. there any sort of expectations well, I, you set? Uh, you know, I, I have uh, now I'm in a different writing style than when I was, you know, a single guy. I have two little kids, a wonderful mm. wife. Um, so I essentially have two parts to my personality where, you know, I'm the hands-on dad. You know, uh, uh, two nights ago I did the night at the museum or the Museum of Science where I slept over with my kid. Mm-hmm. Um and, uh, and, you know, I do, I'm very hands on, but then when I'm writing I'm, I'm locked up in a room. Yeah. So you really just have to sort of compartmentalize. I think I'm very good at compartmentalizing things. Um, and you know, today I am a writer and tomorrow I am, you know, a part of the family. Um, <laughs> and listen, it's only a few months each year that I write and the rest of the time I'm not writing. When you write at the pace that I write, it's, um, it's a very sort of quick job. <laughs> yeah. I've never written book that took more than, you know, 12 weeks. Um, wow. some of my books I've written in three weeks. Um, you know, my most successful book, bringing down the house about the MIT kids I wrote in about four weeks. Um, and so, you know, it's this explosive writing style and I think I do it that way because then I can go back to my real life. Mm. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's, a it's an interesting thing and every writer is totally different. Um, and you know, I've seen writers with a very different style than mine and, different lifestyles. But I, I thought having kids would make it harder to write. And the reality is it's, it's made it better. Um, because I have less time. So I've learned to sort of write much quicker and, and the whole process has has become much more manageable because I know I just want to, you know, have these two parts of my life going on. Mm. And it sounds like you always had this sort of high level of, of cadence, if you will. I mean, going back to writing nine books in college. Um, but oh, now- yeah. I mean, I, I used to be able to write 50 pages a day yeah. um, in college. I mean, the energy level I have towards writing is, is pretty immense. 
Um, but you know, you physically fall apart when you're doing it. It's not a healthy lifestyle. No. Um, so, you know, I try and balance more than I, than I did then. Yeah. And now when you put those short sort of time constraints, when you impose time constraints on yourself, it essentially helps you, like you said, get into flow, get in the zone and just smash out the work. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's part of what it is, is, you know, you have three weeks to write a book you better get cracking. <laughs> mm-hmm. Parkinson's law. Love it. Um, man, this has been a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. But before we wrap up, I'm going to ask you three quick lightning round questions, Ben. Question okay. n- number one is, if you could work with any of the people you have profiled in your books, uh, who would it be and why? If I could work with anybody I've written about? Yeah. Um, well, first, the Winklevoss twins. And I'm not just saying that because I just wrote Bitcoin <laughs> Billionaires. But, I mean, these guys are an impressive force of nature. Yep. I don't think, listen, there's going to be, this is their second act. There's going to be a third act. I think these guys could genuinely be two of the most successful people on the planet when they're done. Um, so that's two. And then I, I wrote a book with Dr. George Church, um, who is the scientist who is bringing back the woolly mammoth. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he's, he's basically the Einstein of our times. And he's just a genius. And so spending time with him was a real treat. How, how far along are they when it comes to bringing back the woolly mammoths, Ben? Well, you know, they're within five to ten years, um, but um, they've already brought back specific genes. Prehistoric genes are living in Petri dishes in his lab. Wow. Have they, I mean, I, I imagine in your book, and excuse me, I haven't read it, but have they thought about the ecological impacts of doing so? Yeah, it's actually, a, that's the reason they're doing it, is they're going to unleash a herd of woolly mammoths around the Arctic Circle and the woolly mammoths actually preserve the cold. They ah. end up actually tramping down the tundra and and and, and making it less likely to melt. Wow. So uh, woolly mammoths were actually a reason why the tundra was frozen for so long. It's a really great, it's a really crazy sort of story, but it's a, yeah, you, you got to check it out. <laughs> yeah, I definitely will check it out. I think you just sold it to me. Um, question number two, Ben, is if you could ask anyone a question, dead or alive, who would it be and what would you ask? Wow. Um, that's a great question. Oh, wow. You know, I would ask Jay McInerney, Mm -hmm. um, if, you know, if he, well, it's a hard question to ask, but he caught such fire with his first book, you know, uh, Bright Lights, Big City was such an immense work. Um, and I think it's very difficult to recover from something like that. Um, so I would, you know, I would like to know, it's a more general question, but he doesn't seem to write that much anymore. Mm. And I wonder if it all goes back to how incredibly huge that book was, not just as a bestseller, but, but as a work of literature. Yeah, it's hard to uh, live up to, essentially. And I guess we see that play right. out in music as well. There's been so many you know, bands over the right. years who had a huge debut album and then just did, And then they kind of vanished. Up. And you wonder, well, maybe they just don't want to write anymore because that's it. That's what they did. Yeah. So it's interesting. It is. It is. And yeah. lucky last, Ben, uh, this is more or less a lifestyle design question. Do you have any sort of daily rituals or routines that help you stay on top of your game that we haven't discussed already? Ooh, um, I think the key to being a writer is ritual. It, it is the ability to do the exact same thing every day for months on end. Um, and that's a hard skill to conquer because anything else will deter you from the path you're on. Mm. So getting into a a routine that's like, you know, almost military, whatever it is, is one of the keys to creativity. Yeah. And I imagine in that case, when you've 
essentially been doing something day after day after day, your brain basically writes a script which says, okay, we're just going to do this anyway, kind of like going to the gym religiously um, to the point where regardless of how you feel emotionally or or physically, you're just going to show up day after day regardless. Exactly. I mean, you just get into that zone and then you just keep going until you're done. Love it. Love it. Well, Ben, this has been a great conversation. Um, If people want to find out more about you, they can hit you up on Twitter at Ben Mesrick. They can check out your website, benmesrick.com. And of course, they can go to Amazon to buy one of your 20 books or all 20 if they're that way inclined, (laughs) uh, including your latest book, Bitcoin Billionaires. Anything else you'd like to um, point our listeners to before we wrap up? No, that's it. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Awesome. Thanks, Ben. Hope you have a great rest of your day. Have a good day. That's a wrap. If you like what you heard, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you listen to it and share it with a colleague or friend. Venture Backed was brought to you by Sonic Boom Media, a content agency helping VC firms generate better deal flow. Head over to sonicboom.vc to learn more and sign up to our fortnightly newsletter for more podcast episodes and venture insights.